We're in 3 John 2. 3 John 2. And uh, I'm going to read this from the New King James Version. It says, The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health just as your soul prospers. This is not just a, a greeting in a personal letter from one person to another. This is God speaking to us. This is the word of God. It's his will written down on paper for all people for all times. And he said, I pray that you may prosper in all things, not some things, not many things, but all things. Now, there, there are people that try to spiritualize this, and they try to spiritualize a lot of things in the Bible. Um, and they'll say, well, this is just talking about prospering spiritually. But this verse says all things, including the health of your body, including your bank account, and everything else in this life that pertains to life and godliness in this lifetime. Yeah. Now, you cannot separate the spiritual realm from the physical, material realm. So when people say, uh, well, this is just talking about spiritual prosperity, you can't separate the spirit realm from the physical, material realm. So, so that argument won't hold up. And uh, he says, and be in health. I pray that you may prosper in all things and be in health. So obviously, this is not just talking about spiritual prosperity because it says, and be in health. So this is obviously talking about your physical health. The uh, easy-to-read version says, My dear friend, I know that you are doing well spiritually. Now, he could have just stopped right there and said, I know you're doing well spiritually, and I'm very, very happy because that's the most important thing. But he didn't say that. He didn't stop there. He continues and says, So, I pray that everything else is going well with you and that you are enjoying good health. So he not only addresses prospering spiritually, he went on to say, um, I pray everything else is going well and that you're enjoying good health. Now, if this is not God's will for all people for all time, it should not be recorded in the Bible. God is not confused about his will, yet many people are. Millions of Christians today do not believe this verse of Scripture. They are opposed to this preaching and teaching from the Word of God, and they will argue that it's not God's will for everybody to be healed, 
And it's not God's will for everybody to be blessed, and it's not God's will for everybody to be rich, especially Christians. <laughs> that's that's uh, what millions of these Christians believe. It, it, it's God's will for some people, but not for them and not for Christians in general. They believe God has some purpose in them being sick, or God has some purpose in them being poor or, or living in insufficiency, yet they have no scripture to base that belief on. They have no scripture to base that on. Uh, it does not come from the Bible. That, that belief does not come from the Bible. So where does it come from? Well, somewhere after the book of Acts, uh, pagan philosophy and doctrines from other religions began to be injected into Christianity. Somebody somewhere prayed for someone and they were not healed. Mm -hmm. So then they created a new doctrine that it's not God's will for everybody to be healed. And this was preached over the pulpits and handed down from one generation to the next generation. In some Christian circles, vows of poverty from other religions, not, not Christianity, but from other religions, were injected into Christian teaching and remain to this day elevated as a virtue. But if you're a parent or a grandparent, uh, would you have some good purpose in seeing your children or grandchildren sick or struggling financially? Would, would, would you honestly say, well, a little leukemia, that, that, that's good for you. You know, a little leukemia, a little epilepsy, a little cystic fibrosis, some heart trouble, that'll make you appreciate being healthy. And a lot of people have this philosophy and this approach. They, they honestly think that, that uh, God has some benefit in them being sick and that it will make them appreciate being well. Uh, how about, you know, not being able to pay your bills and, and, and struggling, you know, people working two and three jobs just trying to make ends meet. Uh, you know, some, some people today, they, they think, well, it's good for young people to struggle. You know, it's good for them to have to work three jobs and, and, and just live from paycheck to paycheck. Uh, that'll build some character in them, you know. Uh, no, sinners don't believe that. And Christians don't believe that, except in church on Sunday. Christians don't believe that. Monday to Saturday, but when they walk in church on Sunday, many Christians embrace these beliefs. Uh, I have heard of churches that didn't pray for someone who was sick because they thought it might not be God's will to heal them. Now that, that is just beyond me. That is just beyond me. Um, yet the same people who, who didn't pray for someone in their church because they thought it might not be God's will for them to be healed, the same people will go to the doctor. They'll go to the doctor and try to get better. So 
why don't they pray before they go to the doctor? Why don't they pray about whether they should go to the doctor because maybe it's not God's will for them to be well? If they really, if they really question whether or not it's God's will for them to be healed, why don't they pray before they go to the doctor? No, they don't pray before they go to the doctor. They just go because they want to be well. So this is hypocrisy. This is just hypocrisy. It's ignorance. It's religious tradition. Um, you know, I know people who claim to be Christians who adamantly oppose the Bible on this subject of material prosperity. Yet, they have a big house, they have multiple cars, they've sent their kids to private schools, but yet they would not agree with anything that I have said so far about God's will to prosper and to bless his people. The, these people, are they're, they're ignorant and they're just uh, hypocrites. If they, you know, if they really believe that it's not God's will to prosper his people, why aren't they living that way? Why don't they live what they say they believe instead of having a big house and multiple cars and sending their kids to private schools? Why, don't, why aren't they living in the, in the poverty that they believe that the Bible teaches? There are people who have money with a poverty mentality as well. Uh, they, they have money, but yet they live in poverty. They have a poverty mindset. They live in fear that they're going to lose it, and they won't spend it. <clears throat> um, you know, the same thing happened with, with some people in the United States during the, or following the Great Depression. Um, you know, uh, when they came to uh, accumulate money, after the depression, they continued to live with this poverty mindset because they were fearful that they would lose it. Uh, they were afraid to spend it, and they just lived like, like misers. They wouldn't buy anything because they still had this depression, poverty mindset. Many uh, older people in this country who grew up during World War II when there was rationing and shortages of everything uh, in the midst of this, in 1943, the British government issued a campaign called Mend and Make Do. Mend and Make Do. Now, that's a good poverty statement, isn't it? Uh, and even though many of these people who lived during that time and grew up during that time, they may not be poor today, but they still think that way. They never buy anything new. They never throw anything old away. They just repair what's old and keep trying to use it. They keep mending it, repairing it, and making do with it instead of throwing the thing away and buying a new one. Uh, I saw uh, on the news here once an older couple being interviewed who had lived during World War II, during all this rationing. and. To this day, they were still saving uh, every disposable item that they bought. They would save, you know, the cardboard rolls that come in the toilet rolls and the paper uh, towel rolls. They would 
when they would come to the end of the, the paper towel, they would save the cardboard tubing and they would make something out of it. They would never throw anything away. And they had all this junk all over the house made, made out of uh, cardboard and, and paper and stuff that they would never throw it away because they had this poverty mindset that they might need it. We might need this someday, so they would never throw it away. This is a poverty mentality. Proverbs 23, 7 says, as he thinks in his heart, so is he. And this mindset can be passed down from one generation to the next. So if there's anyone within the sound of my voice and you've been saving up plastic salad bowls, you know, or, or as you drive through McDonald's and you get something that comes in a plastic container, a plastic cup, uh, and you don't want to throw it away because you think, oh, I might need this someday, or uh, toilet roll holders, uh, or uh, you got an old lawnmower uh, at home and it, ha it doesn't work, it hasn't worked in years, but you don't want to throw it away because you think, well, there, you know, uh, there might be some spare parts there that we might need someday. No. That's a, all this is poverty mindset. Go home and throw all that stuff away. Just get rid of it. We need to come up higher in our thinking in order for God to bless us the way he desires. We got to get rid of this poverty mentality and saving up all this junk that we'll never use again. Um, uh, there's nothing wrong with saving, but we're not saving up for hard times. We're not, we're not expecting hard times. We're expecting blessed times. Uh, Young's literal translation says, Beloved concerning all things, I desire thee to prosper and to be in health. This is God's desire for his own children, purchased by the blood of Jesus and adopted as his own. Now, when we're talking about Bible prosperity, the God kind of prosperity, whether it's spiritual or physical or financial, it begins on the inside of us. It begins on the inside with the Word of God. Just like healing. Healing doesn't start out in your physical body. It starts out in your spirit. Your spirit prospering on the word of God that God wants you well and that it's God's will for you to be well. And the, the same principle operates whether you're talking about the new birth or, or healing or financial and material blessing and, and provision it all starts out the same way. Faith comes by hearing the word of God. We have to know from God's word that it's God's will for us to have this. So our, our spirit and our soul has to begin to prosper on the word of God first. This is where a Bible prosperity begins. It starts with the word and getting it on the inside of us and hearing it so that faith begins to come to believe for these things. If Christians have been saved for five years, 10 years, 20 or 30 years, 
If they have been in a Bible-believing church, a Bible-teaching church, then they, they should know the will of God by now. Yeah. When it comes to the God kind of prosperity, they should know the will of God by now. And, and people shouldn't still be asking questions in the areas about the will of God. Now, the people that go to, to churches where they don't teach the word of God, they don't teach the Bible, it's just religion and religious tradition, they, are, they have questions about everything. These are the, they, they, they question whether it's God's will for them to be healed. They question whether it's God's will to be blessed. Some of them even question if it's God's will for them to be saved. Uh, but but for, for those who, are, who have been in Bible-believing churches and Bible-teaching churches, we shouldn't be still asking questions about the will of God 20 and 30 years later. We should know the will of God by now. Now, when it comes to the study of end times, uh, yes, there are valid questions that, that we can ask in this area because the Bible uh, doesn't clearly address specifics about the end times. So there are valid questions we can, we can ask when, it, when we're talking about uh, end times. But when it comes to uh, uh, the new birth and healing and, and God's desire to bless his people, uh, we go to the word of God. The word of God is very clear. It has settled all, all of these, uh, uh, it has addressed all of these topics very clearly and settled once for all God's will concerning total prosperity, spirit, soul, body, and materially. So the word of God has already settled and answered these questions. We, we shouldn't have any more questions in these areas. Now, we've talked about um, the God kind of prosperity that the Bible teaches is an ongoing progressing state of success and well-being. Uh, 2 Corinthians 9 verse 8 is a good scriptural definition and purpose of the God kind of prosperity. It says, And God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you always having all sufficiency in all things. Now this is the will of God for all people for all times, that, that we always have an all-sufficiency in all things, may abound to every good work. So the God we serve, we're talking about what kind of God do we serve? Do we, call, do we uh, serve a, uh, a rich God or do we serve a poor God? What, what, what kind of God do we really serve? A lot of people have a lot of confusion about this. And that's why we're, we're going to the Word of God to answer these questions. Um, in, in the God that we serve, He desires that we have abounding ability in all things. In all things. Uh, we know that the God kind of prosperity is not a certain amount of money. It's, it's relative to what God has called uh, 
individuals to do in the kingdom of God. Some people will say, well, a million dollars or a million pounds, that's a lot of money. It's not a lot of money if you need three million. If what God's asked you to do is gonna cost three million, one million is not a lot of money. That's, that's not enough. So, so uh, uh, Bible prosperity is not a specific amount of money. Uh, the Passion Translation translates 2 Corinthians 9, 8 as saying, having more than enough of everything. Yes. Having more than enough of everything. This is, this is the God kind of prosperity that, that, that the Bible teaches. Uh, in classical Greek, it means independently wealthy, needing nothing. Now that would include money and anything else required to meet the need. So this is the God that we serve, a God of always having all sufficiency, a God of abundance, a God who desires us to be abounding in every good work. Not a poverty God, but a rich God. That's the God that we serve. Now, today, we want to go back and look at Abraham. Uh, what kind of God did Abraham serve? We need to establish this because we serve the same God Abraham did. So what, so what kind of God did Abraham uh, serve? Uh, if we go back to Genesis 17, um, where we go back to uh, Abraham, now, as I mentioned earlier, the first step to having faith for the God kind of prosperity is getting rooted and grounded in the Word of God. And many believers start out and they, they hear the Word of God in this area, they get excited, they get excited to hear about the abundance of God, and then the devil comes immediately to steal the word out of, that, out of their hearts. He, he, can, he can come through preachers. He can come through other Christians. He can come with wrong teaching. He can come with doubt or make people feel guilty about um, being blessed and having uh, an, an abundance of blessings. Uh, but how, whatever avenue the devil takes, he will try to come immediately to steal that word out of their heart. Now let's go back to um, Genesis 17, verse 1. And it says, And when Abram was ninety years old and nine, the Lord appeared to Abram and said unto him, Now this is God speaking directly to Abram. This is not secondhand information. This is not somebody said that somebody said. Uh, God uh, is speaking directly to Abram. He said, I am the Almighty God. Now, in Hebrew, that is El Shaddai. And El Shaddai is one of the seven redemptive names for God in the Old Covenant that reveals a particular characteristic of God. 
by this name El Shaddai, God revealed himself to the patriarchs. El means God, and it describes the supreme God, the only true God, his everlasting nature, his might, his power, and his strength. Uh, in other words, there's, there's not anybody above him. Shaddai, this word is translated back to several different Hebrew verbs and compound words, and it's translated mighty. It's also translated sufficient, the all-sufficient God. Now, isn't that what we just read in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 8 in the New Testament? He is able to make all grace abound to us, that we having all sufficiency and all things. So he's the all-sufficient one in the old covenant. He's the all-sufficient one in the new covenant. In, uh, Gen We're not going to turn there, but in Genesis 49, verse 25, in the complete Jewish Bible, this is just before Jacob died, and he prophesied over his sons. And this is what he spoke over his son, Joseph. He said, by the God of your father, who help, helps you, by El Shaddai, who will bless you with blessings from heaven above, blessings from the deep lying below, blessings from the breast and the womb. Now, does this sound like Jacob had a desire for Joseph to be poor? No. Does this sound like God wanted Joseph to be poor? No. Uh, Jacob, Jacob didn't say to Joseph, Well, now, my son, if it's God's will, be blessed. No. No, no he didn't say, well, my son Joseph, it, it's just all up to God whether you're blessed or not. No, he did not say that. Why? Jacob already knew the will of God. He already knew it was God's will for his descendants to be blessed. And that's why he spoke the blessing over them. Now, how did Jacob know that? He knew it from his grandfather Abraham and his father Isaac. Can, can you see just like a poverty mindset can be passed down from one generation to the next? This blessing and abundance mindset, this blessing of God mindset can be passed down from one generation to the other. And that's why the Jewish people get this. They don't believe in being poor. They don't believe that you're supposed to be poor. The Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, all these uh, old covenant people, they knew it was God's will for them to be blessed. They knew it was God's will for them to be rich. They weren't asking questions about it. They knew from the word of God. He knew about this covenant of increase, that God would multiply them exceedingly, spiritually, numerically, financially, materially. They were not ignorant about their covenant. And this is a problem today. Many Christians are so ignorant about our covenant 
you know, a, a blessing, especially this part of our covenant. Uh, most Christians yeah. just are so ignorant about the, our new covenant today. Yes. El Shaddai means the all-sufficient one. It also means destroyer who destroys our enemies. And sickness and poverty are two major enemies of God's people. They are not blessings. They are enemies. And this is a revelation we need to get, that God is our total, complete source of supply. Just like an, an infant is totally, completely reliant on its mother for all of its uh, nourishment and provision, in that respect, the mother is the all-sufficient one. And in that, in, in, in our, and uh, in, in, in reference to us, God is our all-sufficient one. We are totally, completely dependent on him for all of our uh, supply, all of our needs, all of our nourishment. Uh, that's what God is to us. He is our total source of supply. Not our job, not our family, not investments, and definitely not the government. Definitely not the government. Many people, including Christians, they look to their job as their source, they look to uh, their investments as their source, they look to their family, their parents or whatever, and uh, millions and millions and millions of people look to the government as their source. But all these things are here today and gone tomorrow. And that's why when people put their security in their job and they put their security in their investments, when a crisis comes and suddenly these things are gone, that's why people start jumping out of windows and start jumping off of buildings because they have put their uh, security in the wrong things. They put their security in material things that are here today and gone tomorrow. But when we get this revelation that, that God is our source, he's our total source of supply and he's not running out. He's, he's not running out. Uh, you know, heaven is not running out. Uh, when, when we get this revelation, it will produce freedom. We no longer put pressure on other people for anything. Uh, when, when preachers have this revelation that God is their source of supply, then they don't put pressure on people to give. And they don't put pressure on people saying, well, if you don't give, we're not going to be able to do such and such. They're, they're making the people their source. They're not making God their source. Uh, man's supply can run out, but God's supply never runs out. There's always more where that came from. And God is never, never going to say, well, Come back next month. We're running a bit short this month, you know. Uh, uh, come back with your request next month, and we'll we'll have a, uh, you know, we'll have some more money, or we'll have 
some more of whatever you need, but we're running a bit short this month. No, he's not a God of lack. He's not a God of insufficiency and poverty. He is El Shaddai, our only source, and he is on the throne. He is our unlimited, unfailing source of supply. Now, in Genesis 17:1, God spoke to Abram and said, I am El Shaddai, the all-sufficient one. Walk before me and be thou perfect. Verse 2, and I will make my covenant between me and thee and will multiply thee exceedingly. Did God do what he said? Yes. He, he multiplied Abram exceedingly. He multiplied him spiritually. He multiplied him numerically. He multiplied him financially. How do we know? In Genesis 13, 2, it says, And Abram was very rich in cattle and silver and in gold. Now, you cannot spiritualize that. You can't say, well, yeah, uh, Abram was, was spiritually prosperous. I've never seen uh, a spiritual cow or a spiritual, spiritual gold or spiritual silver. No, they're only real cows and they're only real, there's only real gold and real silver. You can't spiritualize a cow. Uh, when it says he was very rich in cattle and silver and gold, this is material, physical, assets. This is proof positive that spiritual prosperity is directly connected to financial and material prosperity. It's because God blessed him spiritually that he was also blessed financially and materially. The, the physical realm is the byproduct of the spiritual unseen realm. El Shaddai, he's mighty to supply. The God of abundance, the God of increase, the God of more than enough. Now, let's, let's move on to Genesis chapter 22. We're, we're talking about do we serve a rich God or do we serve a poor God? You know, if, if we were able to interview Abraham today, we would say, Father Abraham, did you serve, when you were living on the earth, did you serve a rich God or a poor God? He, he, he would obviously say, I served a rich God. So, so this is important for us to know because we are serving the same God that he served. We're still asking the questions. The question, do we serve a rich God or a poor God? Many of, many, millions of Christians have received a curse as a blessing in disguise. Many Christians have received lack and insufficiency and poverty and called it some kind of a blessing in disguise. The truth is poor is bad and sick is bad and there's nothing good in it. There's nothing good in either one. Uh, we're supposed to fight it naturally. We're supposed to fight it spiritually. And this sickness and poverty mindset is probably 
the result of generations of unbelief, of wrong thinking, wrong preaching, wrong believing. Uh, uh, this, this is how this stuff it gets passed down from one generation to the next. But what we have, what we have to do, we have to take the Word of God and start putting it in, putting, putting it in our eyes, our ears, and our mouth and let it get down in our spirit. And as the, the more we put the word in, it will begin to flush out. Just like, you know, just like if I took this glass and I stood here and I started, started pouring water in it, it would eventually overflow uh, and begin to spill out on the floor. If there were any impurities in the bottom of this glass, they would eventually get flushed out. Uh, with with water, well, the word of God um, uh, often uses, uh, you know, water is a type of the word, and and if we put the word in our eyes, our ears, our mouth, we can flush out all that poverty teaching and all that Amen. poverty mindset. Yes. We have to replace it Amen. with the word of God to, to flush out all that Amen. wrong believing. Yes. So, so as we do, things will gradually get better and get yeah. better Amen. and get better. And the main thing is just to stay with it and don't give up. This is where many Christians fail is that they start out, they start out good, they get excited, and then when, when things don't happen, uh, when they you know, in the time frame that they uh, are believing for, they get discouraged and they give up. Uh, you know, but in Galatians it says, we will, it says, do not be weary in well-doing, for we shall reap if we faint not. And that's a problem many Christians faint before they, they see uh, uh, things turn around in this material financial realm. Now, in Genesis 22, God revealed himself again to Abraham through one of these compound redemptive names that reveals his nature and his will. Um, back in Genesis chap chapter 15, God cut a covenant with Abram when he promised him Isaac and he promised him the land. And Abram asked, how will I know these things? How will I know? And God killed uh, these animals and he separated them into halves and he, they went through this covenant, blood covenant ceremony. Some Bible teachers believe that, that Abram actually saw God's footprints walking through the blood of these animals as he swore these things to him in a blood covenant, uh, giving Abram his word that these things would happen. God, God did it in the form of a blood covenant. And as part of a blood covenant, each party promises, all that I have is yours. And it's a very solemn, very binding agreement. And this is the relationship that God and Abram had together. 
And God had made Abram rich, and he gave him a miracle son. And God said, everything I have is yours. And Abraham said, thank you, Lord. Everything I have is yours. Then we come up to Genesis chapter 22, and God now says to Abraham, I want you to give me Isaac. And Abraham said, Lord, you want Isaac? Now they're in covenant relationship together. Remember, God says, everything I have is yours. And Abraham has said, everything I have is yours. And now God says, I want Isaac. And the Lord said, yes, I want Isaac. And God told him where to go. He said, go to Jerusalem, uh, which is now what we, we know is the Temple Mount. Go to Jerusalem and sacrifice Isaac. Now you can see why God chose Abraham to make a covenant. Because the next verse, Genesis 22 verse 3, it says, And Abraham rose up early in the morning. Abraham went immediately. When God told him, I want Isaac go to Jerusalem and offer him up to me. He got up early the next morning, packed up all their equipment, and went. He didn't say, well, Lord, now I'm going to have to pray about this for a week. I'm going to go away and pray about this for five days, and I'll come back in five days, and I'll give you my answer. No. He went immediately. He did not hesitate. Now this tells you what kind of a man Abraham was. The very next morning, they packed up the equipment, and Isaac and the servants, then they all left together. And when they reached the location, Abraham said to the servants, You wait here. The boy and I will be back. Now, if you want to hear a faith statement, that's a faith statement. This is faith talking. The boy and I will be back. He didn't say, poor me, I'll be back. I've got to go kill my son. No, he said, we'll both be back. You wait here. Abraham fully expected for the resurrection from the dead of Isaac. He believed that God would raise Isaac from the ashes of that sacrifice back to life. How do we know that? Because in Hebrews 11, verse 17 to 19, it says, By faith, Abraham, when he was proved, offered up Isaac, and he offered him being his only begotten son. Now, where have we heard that before? His only begotten son that had the promises. Because he considered that God was able to raise him up again from death. Therefore, he received him back for a figure. 
Abraham had, in his mind, he had already received uh, Isaac raised back from the dead. Now, some people would say, well, he, he didn't intend to kill him. He, he didn't fully intend to kill him. Oh, yes, he did. He fully intended to go through with it. Uh, Abraham knows that God has covenanted with him that through Isaac, his descendants would be like the sands in the seashore and the stars of the sky. So in order for, for this prophecy to come to pass, he knows he can't kill this boy and he stays dead. He knows that, that it, when he kills him, that God will have to raise him back to life. He had faith and he was fully persuaded that God would raise him back to life. And so here they, they go. He, he tells the servants, you stay here, the boy and I will be back. And Abram and Isaac began to walk up the mountain. And Isaac, imagine, begins to think, what's going on here? You know, <laughs> because... He says to Abraham, uh, Father, we have the wood and we have the fire, but where's the sacrifice? And he's probably beginning to think ahead and think something is up here. Uh, something suspicious is up here. And in verse 8, it says, Abraham answered him and said, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. Now that is faith talking. God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. That's, that has to be faith. Abraham, uh, he, there was, he had been told to offer up Isaac. So they come to the place of sacrifice, and Abraham builds the altar. He piles up the wood, puts Isaac on top, ties him up. You know, we talk a lot about Abraham's faith. What about Isaac's faith? To let, to let your father build an ark, pile the wood up there, put you on top of it, tie you on to it. By now, he knows what's going on. <laughs> By now, he's, he knows what's going on, and, and there's no protest. You want to talk about some faith of Isaac uh, to lay on that wood pile and let his father raise a knife up, fully intending to kill him. In verse 10 and 11, we know Abraham was serious about it because as he was about to lower the knife, the angel came and stopped him. And the Lord, angel of the Lord intervened and stopped him. Uh, now here's another faith lesson for us. God let Abraham go down to the wire before he intervened and stopped him. He let Abraham go all the way through this right down to the wire fully believing he was going to go through this and kill his son. And, and God, at the very last moment, the 11th hour and 59th minute, 
God intervened. And this is something that we don't really like to think about in our lives. But this is another faith lesson for us. God will often let things go right down to the wire yes. before he intervenes. Yes. He will wait, and he will let us wait, and he will let us wait until the very last moment. Now, we, we would like to think God is the God of the first hour, you know. Uh, he, he could intervene on hour one. But most of the time, it's the 11th hour and the 59th minute before he does because he's a faith God. Uh, what about at the Red Sea? I mean, God knew all along he was going to, uh, you know, uh, release the Israelites from Egyptian slavery. He, he knew how he was going to do it and everything. But he let the Egyptians come after them. And he let the Egyptians chase them all the way to the Red Sea. And he let them get there, sticking their toe in the water practically, before God intervened. He let it go right to the wire when they were at the Red Sea in front of them. And here come the Egyptians, the entire Egyptian army, chasing after them right on their heels. And God waited till the very last moment, till they were... 10 inches from the Red Sea before he intervened and opened up the water to rescue them, before he split that sea. How about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? How about them? God didn't even wait till the 11th hour and the 59th minute to rescue them. He even let them be thrown in. He didn't even intervene. He let them be thrown in the furnace before he intervened, but he did intervene. He, he didn't stop the wicked king from throwing them in the fire. He could have. He could have stopped the king from throwing them in, but he, he didn't. He let the king throw them in, and then he intervened. Uh, so we don't like to hear this, but we see this over and over in the Bible with men and women of faith. From our point of view, when the clock is ticking and it looks like time's running out and it looks like we're going to go under any minute and the devil's closing in and he's saying, you only got five more hours, you only got four more hours, you only got two more hours, you got to have that money. What are you going to do if it doesn't come, you know? And the clock's ticking, and the devil starts putting pressure on us, and he starts putting the squeeze on us. And at the last minute, God intervenes, provides the need, and gives us the victory. And we think, we think, boy, that was close. I mean, that was close. Lord, you, you let it go right to the wire before you sent that money. You know, you let it go right to the wire before you intervened. But when it looks like to us that God waited till the 11th hour and the 59th 
second to intervene, we're thinking, boy, that was a close call. But in God's eyes, it wasn't close. In God's eyes, it was never close. In God's eyes, when, when, when the Egyptians were chasing the Israelites right to the Red Sea, it was never close. God knew exactly what he was going to do. And, and, and we breathe a sigh of, of relief and think, boy, I barely escaped that. And with God, it was never close. It's just like from, from our viewpoint, it looks like, boy, that was a close call. But with God, it's never close. He knows exactly how it's going to turn out. He knows exactly what he's going to do. And he knows exactly when to do it. And he's not going to tell us in advance what he's going to do, how he's going to do it, or when he's going to do it because he is a faith God. And he requires faith on our part. God knew Abraham would do it. Yes. He knew Abraham would do it. That's why he called him. And this is why Abraham's name is in this book. And, and, and when God sent the angel and intervened and said, Don't hurt him. I know you truly obey and you were willing to offer your only son. And now we know why God asked Abraham to offer up Isaac his only begotten son, so that 2,000 years later, God, as Abraham's covenant partner, is now in the very same position. He's going to offer up his only begotten son because his covenant partner, Abraham, was willing to do the exact same thing 2,000 years earlier. Now, when it comes time for our salvation and for Jesus to go to the cross, God is bound by his word and covenant with Abraham to offer his only begotten son, Jesus, as a sacrifice for mankind and raised him up from the dead. Abraham's obedience gave God the legal right to do the same thing for mankind, and he has done it. He has done it for us. In, uh, this is Genesis 22:13. Abraham looks up, and he sees a ram caught in the thicket. And he takes the ram, and he offers it up as a sacrifice instead of Isaac. And in verse 14, it says, and Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh. This is another one of the uh, seven redemptive names of God in the Old Covenant that describes part of his nature. Jehovah-Jireh. As it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it shall be seen. Jehovah means the self existing one. In other words, God is not dependent on anybody else for anything. Jehovah Jireh. Jireh um, 
is translated to see, to look after, or to make ready. Uh, this Jehovah Jireh, the same word Abraham used in verse 8 when he said God will provide himself a lamb. That's the same word Jireh. God will provide. Same word he uses in verse 14 when he called the name of that place Jehovah Jireh. Here God revealed himself to Abraham again as Jehovah Jireh, the one who sees ahead and provides. The one who sees ahead and provides. God saw ahead. He saw Abraham's faith. He knew he was uh, willing and obedient to sacrifice Isaac. And he intervened at the end and made, had already made provision. He had already seen Abraham's faith. He had already made provision for that ram to be in the right place at the right time as a substitute for Isaac and, and, and to make a sacrifice uh, that Abraham could use in place of Isaac. God arranged for that ram to be there at that place at that time and Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah Jireh, the one who sees ahead and provides. God saw the future and he arranged for that ram to be there at that time for that need to be met. What about our needs? When we don't know where it will come from or how God could get it to us, we say, God will provide. This is where that, that comes from. God will provide. Yes, yes. This is the God Abraham served, and we serve the same God. Amen?